Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green. So, I recently attended the Capturing Christianity conference in Houston, Texas. It was a good excuse to get together with a few friends, talk about apologetics and philosophy, and it was a great time. I also ran into a few YouTubers and podcasters there, and I brought my recording equipment along, so I spoke to a few attendees, and this is the product of that. Christian Idealism and Invoking Theism joined me to talk about the fall, the problem of evil, the defeat condition whether defeating evil entails universalism, hell, eternal conscious torment, and other models of the afterlife. I also spoke to John Buck and Necessary Being about libertarian free will, which will be coming out later. Everything recorded was fairly laid back, not a debate or anything, just a friendly conversation. This was all recorded in my hotel room. As you'll hear, there are a handful of other people in the room listening in on the recording. We also all had a bit to drink, maybe more than a bit to drink in my case. Hopefully that's not too obvious. So with that, let's get to the conversation. Christian Idealism YouTube channel for a few years now, and my main area is in the philosophy of religion, philosophy of science, and the philosophy of mind. Well, my name is Tim. I run the Invoking Theism YouTube channel, Twitter page, social media, everything. Um, and my main interests are philosophy of religion, metaphysics, and the philosophy of science. Yeah, thanks for having us, man. In addition to Tim and Kyle, we got John Buck, who you might know from me defeating him in a debate on uh, God's existence. <laughs> we have, um, we have uh, Nathaniel. Yeah. And we have Kyle. Um, yeah, just picked me up off the street. <laughs> we picked him up off the street. And then we have uh, Matt, um, who is like a theology. You're a teacher at a Catholic high school, but you were like a theology student. Yeah, I'm a theology student, but I'm also teaching theology at said high school. Oh, he's a theology oh, teacher at that high school. Um, and then we have Darren, Necessary Being, who you, you might have known him as when he had a popular uh, Twitter account, and then he fell from grace, and now he's nothing to anybody. <laughs> he's cool. a, an atheist who, I mean, atheist is like a good first approximation, but he's an atheist who believes in libertarian free will, probably one of the four in existence. Um, I, I want to hear more about that later. That sounds cool. Yeah, so Kyle, you have this thing. You like to talk about defeatable evils or defeasible evil. You like to talk about the defeat condition. And do you think that this is um, like a significant factor in the argument from evil discourse that theists should take more advantage of? Yeah, so one of the things, um, there's a book by John Schneider, is, what was it called? Tim? It's called The Darwinian Problem of Evil. Yeah, and so one of the first things he goes over, I forgot exactly which chapter it was, but he talks about these, like, what's called moral preconditions, right? And one of the... Um, preconditions that I see arguments from evil make is what's called the necessity condition, right? So basically God is only authorized to allow evil if the evil um, is justifiable, 
But what what the, what it means by being justifiable is that the evil is necessary for a greater good, or that it's necessary to prevent a greater evil, basically, right? Um, and that's the necessity condition, and what the so that's that's one paradigm that a lot of that that I see arguments people make, and what the defeat condition is, it's 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 a little bit different. It's a different paradigm of of uh, at least morally justifiable evils, which is that an evil is defeatable, right? So it's not that it's it's not like this balancing off idea where like you know God is necessarily working against evil, but rather God uses evil to bring about what's called defeatable evil, and defeatable evils is basically that any evil that can be um, integrated into a larger larger whole, as as uh, John would say, and of course as um, Marilyn McCord Adams would say. I, I know Tim, I, Tim, what's the exact definition of defeatable evil? So, um, yeah, so the definition of defeat that John Schneider uses um, is taken from Roderick Chisholm in his paper, um, I think, uh, Goodness the def- and the Defeat of Evils. And basically, he says that a it's a kind of axiological defeat, just like we have epistemic defeat, you know, rebutting and undercutting defeaters and things. Well, there's an axiological defeater known as um, what he calls the defeat of evils. And what that means is that um, an evil is defeated within the individual life of a person uh, if, that, if that evil is integrated into that person's life to bring about an uh, overall valuable whole. And so instead of, of a balancing off relation where you look at the positive and uh, the proportion of positive and negative parts in a person's life, rather you look at what is this person's life, what is the value of this person's life on the whole? And so a person can integrate an evil into their life. While that evil will still remain evil, it ends up becoming a necessary good-making uh, part of that person having a life that's valuable on the whole. And this requires that that person actually endorses the life that they lived because of that evil. And so it's very different than this balancing off relation um, because what Marilyn McCord Adams points out is that a person's life on the whole can have a completely different value than their parts. And so you can talk about compensating someone's evil and things of that sort, but if that person does not identify with who they are in the midst of that evil or, or subsequent to that evil, or if they do not endorse what happened to them, you still haven't really addressed the evil that happened. And so someone like Chisholm thinks no theodicy really does any justice unless it takes into account the individual person's life in terms of defeat, in terms of what their life is on the whole. How is this distinct just from the concept of like justified versus unjustified evils? Because it sounds like what you're saying, like, yeah, it's not about some kind of like calculation. It's, it's just about having some kind of moral rationale behind the suffering and evil that we see in the world. So I think we can both agree that theism is not in tension with justifiable evil. That, the, that if, if evil exists, the evil must be justified, must be of the justifiable kind. Yeah, there has to be some kind of moral rationale behind the kind degree and distribution of suffering that we see in the world. And, but it seems like when you guys are talking about defeat, you're like introducing something new that wasn't a part of the conversation before. But I'm just not seeing what's new here. Okay, so 
what we have here is when someone wants to show that something like a gratuitous evil is an unjustifiable evil, they're relying on the, on the former condition that Kyle brought up, which is that God, which is it assumes that God is, is going to prevent evil as much as he can that's necessary. For example, he mentions that, well, if preventing this evil prevents a greater evil, then he should do so. Or if allowing this evil actually allows for a greater good, then he's allowed to do so. He's authorized to do so. But, rec- but remember, that assumes the balancing off um, relation, the okay. value parts, then value holes, because what it's saying is that you're comparing the negative value of the lesser evil with the greater good. And so you're kind of putting them on the, on, the, on the table and you're saying, well, is there more good here than there is evil? Okay, if there's more good here than there's evil, then God's justified. But a value holes understanding says, no, 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 we don't look at the parts. We look at the whole. But to do so, you have to look at the life of the individual, not the parts of the, of the values. Right. So the way that William Rowe defined gratuitous evil was like the way that you just defined it, where um, a gratuitous evil is one that God could eliminate and there would be no corresponding evil that would then arise that was just as bad or worse, or there'd be no corresponding good that would be lost. Um, you know, that was that sort of balanced it out, so to speak. Yeah, um, balancing off relation. Yeah, so I, I see what you mean now. But um, I feel like there's a more charitable way of interpreting what we already meant by gratuitous evil so that it, it takes into account, like, it, you know, if you eliminated this evil, then when you looked at the whole life, then it would not be as good of a life because you'd prevent all these other goods, you know, or there'd be all these other evils that, uh, you know, were then let loose that would be worse than what actually happened. So it doesn't really seem like, again, it just doesn't really seem like anything new. I mean, if you want to just say it's a new way of looking at old information, then that's fine. But I just don't really see how, like, the defeat condition is, um, like, truly something that, like, was not a part of the conversation before, and then now it's like, Oh, the problem of evil discussion is totally different now that we're talking about defeat. I, I think there is a there is a relevant difference because then theism is no longer in contention with gratuitous evil; it's in contention with indefeasible evil. So, so a gratuitous evil, you can agree that there is quote unquote pointless evil, but that does not at all address the question if an individual could integrate that into their life where they endorse their life in the end. That's a whole different question. Well, if it's pointless, then they. And they can't or they won't. It's pointless in terms of value parts. Like gratuitous evil is Or in terms of value whole. Like, I don't see why it would just be constrained to that. If it's in terms of value holes, then we would say then it's... In, it's we're now we're looking at things in terms of an, an evil being indefeasible rather than being gratuitous. Okay, so if an evil exists in the world and it's not possible to defeat this evil, then... That's saying, evidence against theism. Right. Or would it be like incompatible with theism or just um, I would it? say that um, that this is how I look at it, which is it's a John Schneider refers to this as our God justifying norms. And that's what he refers to as the two conditions. You have the defeat condition and the necessity condition. He says that what he uses is that he says that God is allowed to authorize an evil if it is able to be defeated. And so that's what makes an evil justifiable. So what, what makes an evil defeated, though? Like, how, how will certain evils be defeated? Like, how will the Holocaust be defeated? Right. So let me finish off this part, and then we can go to that part. Um, so if theism, okay, so on theism, if evil exists, then theism should lead us to expect that it's justifiable. Well, what counts as a justifiable evil? And, and Schneider says, well, the condition I'm using is the defeat. 
So if we observe an evil that is defeasible, then we have encountered a justifiable evil, and therefore theism has led us to has not led us to a false prediction. And so now, getting into the Holocaust, right? Remember that defeat hones in, and this is what Marilyn Adams does in her book on um, on horrendous evils. Is she looks at horrendous evils in terms of um, the life of the individuals, right? And so, if you look at the life of the individuals in the Holocaust, the question is. Are the evils that befell certain people in the Holocaust, um, are those the kinds of evils that a person is able to integrate into their life where they are to recognize that it played a intric- an, a, an integral part in them valuing their life on the whole and, I, and being able to identify with that and being able to say something like, I, you know, I'm, I, I wouldn't want to go through that again, but I wouldn't be the person I am today. But I mean, that, that's that. just trivially true that you wouldn't be the person you are today if you didn't go through the experiences you went through. But I would venture a guess that most of the people who went through the Holocaust wish that it didn't happen. And it's not like, well, I wouldn't yeah. want to do that again, but I can't deny right. that. Right, right, yeah. I, I, mean, I'm, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, Holocaust is a gruesome thing. I'm trying to keep it more uh, on a positive note with that, but. Um, <laughs> well, that's the problem with evil. <laughs> I know, right. Oh, ex- exactly. It's always negative. When yeah, it's probably it's, yeah. But it's we always, are. It's always a dark we, conversation. Yeah, but we are in a cool moment. We are in a philosophical thing right now. Um, so I, I, I totally recognize that. But what I'm saying is that. I'm sorry um, for bringing up such an unchill thing. No, 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 no. It's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Um, and then Kyle, I'll let you, I'll let you talk cause I'm talking oh, yeah, a lot here, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you point out something that's really, that that's actually, um, really important here, which is, is that, well, of course, like the thing is still bad no matter what. Um, so obviously the person's going to want to not want to go through that, but the question becomes, does the person identify and endorse what happened to them in the end. And that is what defeat, and that's when defeat happens. I I just think that that applies to some instances of evil, but it doesn't come close to answering, you know, I mean, this is not like a general theodicy that succeeds, you know? Well, that's the thing is it's not a theodicy in in and of itself. It's the prerequisite for a theodicy, basically. It's the sort of axiological framework that you need in in order to generate, then, you know, generate a theodicy but, but what i'm saying is there are some evils that don't seem defeatable so it seems like by your lights this would be pretty good evidence against theism that there appear to be like indefeasible evils right okay so i think that's actually a really really good place to, to, to camp kyle i'll hand it back to you now the question is do we have any evidence of indefeasible evil and i think that this question should be framed within what theism leads us to expect i think that Theism leads us to expect that in any world in which their evil exists, God provides a post-mortem environment where evils can be fully defeated. Because I agree with you, we, we do observe people exiting this life with having not defeated their evils. So I think that given a Swinburnian way of looking at things, that God will do a best action where there is one, I think the best action that God can take in this circumstance is he will, if he will only allow evils uh, to exist if they're defeasible, but there is a situation where a person not, hasn't yet been able to defeat their evils, well, he's going to provide an opportunity for them to do so. It can't just be in the earthly existence. There has to be a post-mortem existence for that to take place. Okay, so there has to be some kind of afterlife here in order to, because you acknowledge that we do have evidence of so far undefeated evils. 
And so in order for them to be defeated, they would have to be defeated in the afterlife. I'm still not totally, I I guess defeat here just means that the person would acknowledge with, you know, they would acknowledge without any ignorance that the things that happened to them were like permissible because they were justified in some way or Uh, no, they actually come to endorse their lives because of what happened to them. Okay. So yeah, that, I mean, that definitely is not the case if you count death as the ending point. I mean, there's tons and tons of evidence of, of undefeated evils, but, um, it seems like if you guys want to invoke the afterlife, so let's say that someone dies with some undefeated evils and then they get sent to hell or then they're annihilated. Well, okay, well that's that. And then there's no, so it just seems like you're going to be pushed towards some kind of universalism if you want to invoke post-mortem, uh, defeat of evils. Sorry, Kyle, I keep, I keep interrupting, but I, sorry. Yeah, let's, I I love (laughs) that point. We've got to get Kyle in here. I I love that point. And it's one of the, it's one of the reasons why, um, I, it's unsurprising to me why, why, why Marilyn McCord Adams is a universalist in, in, in the end, honestly, it's just unsurprising given that, but Kyle, go ahead. You can go on. No, yeah, because that is a good point, right? So I actually do think that um, the defeat condition, and that at least if you have the defeat condition as your axiology, and then you know you have a theodicy with it, so trying to answer, okay, how how are these evils defeated, right? Because that's what the theodicy has to do; it has to show that these evils are defeated. Um, I, I think it does rule out a large number of like hell and you know hell hypotheses. But there are some, I guess, ver- there's some views of hell that don't have um, retributive justice, I would say, um, where it's more restorative justice. And even within the Catholic tradition, you you do find views um, where, like, someone does not necessarily go to heaven, but they can defeat their evils, right? And that, I can, we can talk more about that if you want. But even even on someone that doesn't affirm universalism, I mean, I agree with you, okay, like you can't have an eternal conscious torment view of hell, right? But within, within what I would say, the eternal punishment views of hell, eh, I think you could still um, hold to a view of hell, in which evils will be defeated, right? Even if everyone's not necessarily saved. Again, we can talk more about that. So you, you, but you do have to accept though, that it's a necessary part of what you're saying that evils can be defeated post-mortem. Yes. Okay. Right. So, I mean, can, and you're, and what you're saying is that can be made sense of even without universalism. Yes. Okay. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on how that would be done with annihilation first and then eternal conscious torment? Well, the annihilationists, well, okay. It really depends on which view of annihilation, annihilationism you hold to. I mean, let's start with, um, I'm an atheist and I walk out there and, and I'm killed by some crazy Texas driver. It just lights out like that version of annihilation. Like. I wasn't saved, so I get killed, and then I'm dead, and I never know the difference. So that's like one reading of annihilationism, is like people who well, aren't saved will just die immediately. I actually do think that um, annihilationism in that view is incompatible with, yeah, with, yeah. What I, with, with at least with the axiology that I'm, that I'm working with. So how about an annihilationist view where I go to hell for 50 years for my sins, and then I die? <laughs> <laughs> In is that, that sense, also incompatible? <laughs> it seems incompatible on the face yes, of it. Yeah, it does. I do admit that it would seem incompatible. Okay, is there face. any annihilationist view that would be compatible with what you're saying? Um, I mean, I honestly don't know. Um, that's a really interesting question. Um, now, there is one, I think one way you could sort of get around this, although I would argue this is sort of ad hoc, but one way you could sort of potentially get around this is to say that, well, theism 
is compatible with defeatable evils, but that doesn't necessarily is like not it's not like necessary that therefore everyone will defeat their evils, right? Um that's what I would that that's one modification of, of it. I understand what he means. Oh, I understand so, uh, what he means by that. So there so there is a, a debate whether or not how strong should the defeat condition be? Should it be that these evils that are authorized to occur are they simply possible to be defeated? Like, can they in right, principle like, be defeated? Do we just have the opportunity to defeat them, or will they actually be oh, yeah. defeated? Or ultimately, in the end, will God ensure that every creature defeats their evils? And honestly, um, I'm going to leave that up to the person to to decide which side they fall on. Yeah, I, fact, I sorry, go ahead. No, what I was going to say is that Trent Dowdery actually makes this point in his book, where it's like, okay, you have one extreme which says that it's possible, you know, the defeat condition where it's just possible that there is some evil that can be defeated. And then you have the other extreme which says, well, no, God will defeat that evil, right? Um, and Trent sort of takes a middle view on that. So, he, you know, what he says is, like, basically that God will only allow evils that are objectively worth it to the creature, right? So even if it's not necessarily defeated in the full sense, it could be at least partially defeated. Right now, for me, I'm sort of agnostic on that question, but I do think that at least a full-on annihilationism would seem to be sort of ruled out. Unless you want to go the really weak view, like the very, very weak view of the defeat condition where it's just possible, mm -hmm. you know? Because, I mean, another way you could think about this is, let's say, that um, it is up to the creature whether they will defeat their evil, right? So God gives them an infinite, like, God gives them infinite opportunities to defeat the evil, but then there's, like, Ascend, like there's, there might be some creatures that decide not to for whatever reason, right? So in that sense, you, you could hold to that view as well, right? And so if in that case, if they wanted to be annihilated for whatever reason, like, okay, well, it was fully up to them whether, you know, God gave them the opportunity to defeat it and they didn't want to, so. I think that in any case, because remember, defeat, defeat, like you said, is a prerequisite to a theodicy. And so it kind of frames how you're going to look at theodicy. So in a sense is like, so defeat is like what allows God to be morally justifiable in authorizing an evil. But then when it comes to the kinds of evils that do become authorized, that gets more into a discussion about um, the goods that one can identify from that. And then, of course, an eschatological explanation of how that incorporates itself into a valuable uh, into a valuable divine narrative i think that when it comes to defeat if you're going to hold the defeat and you're agnostic on how strong it is i think that you should at least believe that that for the most amount of people these evils will be defeated yeah but it, it i seems personally like you have to hold like yeah. i don't i don't really see how it's satisfying at all if you're only giving the opportunity to defeat the evils but like they're never actually defeated and then guys right. like well you had the chance, but you screwed up. It's I like, agree well, with you. Yeah. I, I, I go with the strong notion. I think that God can't see. So I'm, I'm, I'm of the notion that God's love is more powerful and more and has a higher magnitude than our wills. Even though I believe in free will, I think that human beings are just infantile creatures compared to divine beings. And so he I created us that way. But. Well, right. Yeah. And so I feel like a lot of people especially people who are like really adamantly against universalism, which kind of weirds me out a little bit. Um, um, they kind I'm of looking at John in the eyes right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they give, yeah. they give such a high view 
are, uh, they almost act like our wills are like so so robust they, they, they engage they, in what i would call idolatry of a uh, free will <laughs> well yeah idolatry, because i mean yeah. i could wake up tomorrow morning like, like like let's say like i don't eat for the rest of the night i wake up tomorrow morning so hangry i i i like hate like i'm acting like i hate my family but then once i get food in me like I'm the most loving person. It's like if something as simple as a as a biological desire can change my moods and how I view people, then it's like then what can God's like infinite presence, of infinite love do um, to a creature, right? And I think that's why Marilyn Adams is correct when she says that a part of evil is being defeated in a creature's lives involves a creature having to know that God does love them. They have to be they have to be knowing that God loves them. And I think, and I, and I apply the same thing to animals. So I'm an animal universalist. Um, Are you a people universalist? I, I guess I would be universalist about all creatures in that okay, sense. Okay, okay. Well, you uh, specified animal universalist. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I thought it would be a given on the other sense. And um, I think it was, I forget who, I, I think it's Justin Mooney who wrote a, I think he wrote a book recently called An Eschatology of Creeping Things. I've been wanting to get around to, to, to read that. But what I'm starting to find is... Um, um, really sophisticated theodicists these days are starting to get on board with the idea that animal universalism has to be the case. Yeah, that's really caught on. Like, all of a sudden, everyone's talking about how all animals are going to heaven. Like, it seems like no one was talking about that, and then the last couple of years, or especially the last year, suddenly everyone is just totally on board with that idea, <laughs> which is really funny because I asked that about you because it seems like a lot of these people are like, oh yeah, all cats and squirrels are going to heaven, but human beings are not all going to heaven. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, no, that, yeah, no, no, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm especially universalist about humans. It just, it just comes down to, so Schneider and Doherty both believe, hey, listen, animals will be in the afterlife because they both use defeat and, 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 and an afterlife for animals in their response to animal suffering. Yeah, but they, and the thing, they do a lot more suffering than we do. Like in the history of evolution, like human beings didn't come about until somewhat recently, but um, non-human animals have been suffering for hundreds of millions of years. Right, exactly. Where they disagree, though, is what will the animal afterlife look like? So, so Schneider disagrees with Doherty. Doherty thinks that there's going to be a full-blown resurrection of these animals. These animals will have a will just like humans and a cognitive faculty just like humans. Um, so that, in Doherty's sense, he wants, he thinks that God is going to give them the kind of ontology that, that will make sure that they can defeat their evils, right? And Schneider thinks that the animals in heaven will keep their ontological status but God will relate to them on their each individual level. So, for example, um, he mentions that animals will have a kind of martyrdom status, right? Where where God will, where they will be praised for their role in creation and for their self-sacrificial kind of place in the evolutionary history, right? And he 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 applies the pro, uh, the concept of kenosis, kind of a self-emptying that Christ did on the cross to kind of like what we observe in the evolutionary story of animals, you know, um, uh, giving their, giving their lives and passing the generations, their genes on and things of that sort, but they will be aware that they were, they were praised for doing this kind of in the same way that a dog can recognize praise. Like your dog doesn't know exactly what you're saying, but it recognizes your emotion. It recognizes that you're loving him and, and he's happy or he or she's happy just with the fact that you have, you're embracing them. So Schneider thinks that's all God really needs to do. Doherty goes a step further and says, no, they're going to be resurrected. They're going to go through process of theosis just like humans, and they will forever grow in knowledge and goodness. Uh, I think, again, it just comes down to what the person finds plausible or not, most plausible or not. Yeah, I, um, I do think that, um, well, at least on my sort of 
I don't know. I hold like this weird sort of limbo view of hell. <laughs> I can get into that if you want. I mean, so like basically my view of hell is um, an eventual limbo. So like at first it, it, I do think that will be sort of torturous in some fashion right now. I don't want to get too much into the theology behind that, but basically, I mean, my basic view is like hell is a separation of grace. And so hell is when you fully like have immersed yourself in sin and you just fully just try to satisfy those sinful desires or whatever. But my view is, is that eventually we're just going to, at least the people in hell are just going to get sick of it. Right. And so then they are going to, um, I would say reach a better state, like achieve what's called natural beatitudes. Right. Um, and this is, of course, the limbo view. So basically, hell is just going to evolve into limbo eventually. Um, it's not the beautiful. It's not the beatific vision. So that's the eternal punishment of hell, which is that um, these you know people that go to hell are not going to receive the beatific vision, but they will sort of. I would argue they would overcome or defeat their evils, right? Even if they don't like become beautiful, you know, even if they don't receive supernatural um, graces. So that that's what can, I would. Can I ask you one question about yeah. hell? So like. I heard you say this on the um, interview that you had with with John Buck and with Caleb on the Dry Apologist channel. Um, I need to ask you a crucial question that will be of interest of many, many listeners of my podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Can we have sexual relations in hell? Oh, it's, it seemed like you were taking a yes position on, in that episode. I would. Well, okay, so I I would lean towards yes. I don't know for sure. Here's the problem. You just convinced at least half my audience that they're not that worried about going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's funny. I lean towards yes. I can't definitely say for sure, but um, I mean, because I do hold this sort of inhibitory model of hell. You're not going to necessarily, um, you're not going to get deeper and deeper into sin. So that's the inhibitory model. And so in some sense, you're going to realize the damage that your sin does, right? Um, and you're going to eventually at least reduce the amount of sin you do. And that's when hell evolves into limbo. So, so, so hang on, it sounds like you don't believe in eternal conscious torment because eventually no, I don't. All, I don't. I'll end up in limbo at least. Yes. Yes. And John Buck could explain what, what I'm, so, I'm resisting the urge to say that your view is kind of similar to the Mormon view right now. So anyway, John, <laughs> what were you going to say? Well, uh, I just wanted to clarify it's on the Christian idealism channel. So we were on there, not on Caleb's uh, dry apologist channel. Was it? Yeah, it was on my channel. Yeah, it was on your, yeah, that's what I thought. No. So yeah, just to sort of clarify, uh, I also endorse the sort of inhibitory model of hell, where basically those that are damned that have rejected God, they will continue to exist, but in a way that their uh, faculties have been reduced such that they can no longer sin. So like if we consider what would be the ideal world that God could create that our current world would eventually uh, look like, it would be one where there's no more sin anymore. So if you think that... Uh, sex outside of marriage is a sin, then in hell there would be no sex because God would have inhibited the faculties of those creatures in hell so that they could no longer uh, commit sexual acts. Either because God has sort of like restrained their desires or proclivities so that they're no longer interested in having uh, premarital sex, or just that God has um, prevented their faculties to actually succeed at uh, having premarital sex, and they have maybe like frustrated desires or something sort of like that. Either one is sort of compatible with the inhibitory model. So at the end of the day, John, 
Can people have sex in hell? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Because like, <laughs> hell, like, <laughs> 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 unless it's done within a sacred union, I guess. But I, You're I completely doubt- wrong. Kyle is right about this. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is so, one thing me and John might disagree on. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, wait. So you think a married couple who both ends up in hell that they could have sex? Probably not. No. No. Like. <laughs> but you just said within like, would, a union. I would think that. Okay. So like, in order for sex to be uh, fully moral, it would have to be open towards life. And I don't think that there could be procreation that takes place in hell. So that would mean... Why do you keep, like, muting my microphone or something? I'm not muting your microphone. I'm muting my microphone. Oh, uh, gotcha. Okay. How about you keep For your, your <laughs> eyes... <laughs> How about you don't... You just keep your eyes off this board, okay? You don't yeah, understand yeah. what's going on. All right. Yeah, yeah. So, like... Okay, so you were about to say that you think that gay people are going to hell or something because they can't procreate. <laughs> Sex is all about procreation for you. Yeah. Okay, so go ahead. <laughs> so anyway, in an ideal world in which there is no more sin, no more suffering, none of that, then there would not be the opportunity for those in hell to continue to sin. Now, like I know Jerry Walls, he defends a view that like, oh, the reason people are in hell in hell for eternity is because they keep on committing sinful acts. Um, but if... <laughs> yes, specifically gay acts, I'm pretty sure that's... <laughs> Which, I mean, when, when I heard Kyle say that, I was just kind of surprised because I've always viewed hell as, like, kind of unrelenting torment. Like, it's torment that, like, it's not just that it never ends, but it never stops. You know, like, it, it, there's no end to it, and it's unceasing. Like, every moment that you have is, like, filled with torment. But um, given Kyle's view, it sounds like you can at least have some moments of not being in torment. Um, but is your view closer to the idea that you're always in torment? Not just forever, but every moment that you're in hell is torment? No, so the the model that I'm like most sympathetic towards, I guess, is the inhibitory model, where you, those that are damned that have rejected God, God respects their autonomy and allows them to be in separation to God. But God also, for the the creature's own good, prevents them from continuing to sin further, which is is harming themselves. For any time you're you're sinning, you're basically rejecting God and like taking yourself as to be the pinnacle of existence, something like that. And, and to to live in sin is itself going to be a horrible existence. So God, being merciful towards all creation, even those that have rejected him, God inhibits their faculties from being able to continue in sin and possibly even go so far as to prevent them from experiencing time passing. So would they be living in the garden? Uh, so I was asked, would they be living in the garden? But I don't think so, because if the garden, like, according to sort of, like, Christian understanding is supposed to be, like, an ideal state, I wouldn't say so, because those that have rejected God are not going to be living in an ideal state. They're merely going to be continuing in existence, but they're no longer going to be capable of sinning, because they have ultimately rejected God. Kyle, did you want to add anything about defeat or hell, or um, just any final words on the problem of evil? No, I mean, just, I mean, obviously I do think that many versions of hell are ruled out, like eternal conscious torment, but, or even annihilationism, of course, but there are a handful of other models that, of course, are, I think, consistent with the defeat condition without entailing universalism. So obviously universalism would be consistent with it, but the defeat condition, I don't think, entails universalism for that reason, just because there's a lot of different models of hell that you could defeat evils even even in hell, basically. So. Okay, so on that on that video, which is on your channel, not on Dry Apologist channel, sorry. Yes. <laughs> um, but it was with Dry Apologist and John, where you guys are talking about Catholic models of hell. Okay, so you guys do cover this there a little bit, that, you know, defeat 
the defeat condition, the strong defeat condition, which is where evils will be defeated, are you saying that is compatible with eternal conscious torment? Not eternal conscious torment. I would say eternal conscious punishment, which the punishment is just the loss of the, of the beatific vision. It doesn't entail torture, oh, basically. Oh, Okay. Yeah. So the strong version of the defeat condition, though, is compatible with that eternal conscious punishment view. Yes. Okay. Because cool. you got to make a distinction between the punishment and the torture, right? Mm-hmm. So a punishment does not necessarily entail torture, right? Taking something away for eternity. Yeah, it's just basically taking something away for eternity, which is, I would argue, the eternal punishment of hell, not the eternal torture, but the eternal punishment of hell, is the loss of the beatific vision, so... I want to just ask a quick question before we move on to free will to Emerson. So you as an atheist, what do you think, you don't have to have a hard, fast view on this, but just from your own standpoint as an atheist, what do you think hell is metaphysically? Do you think... Non-existent. Well, okay, if, it were, if it were to exist, do you think it's more of like a state? Or do you see it more as like, because people often talk about it as like a literal physical place? You know, like a jail cell. I remember like I heard this thing called 23 Minutes in Hell when I was a kid. It was about a guy who had an NDE where he actually went to hell instead of heaven. Like, he's one of the very, like, small number of cases that um, experience, like, a negative NDE. Mm-hmm. And so he woke up in hell, and he was like, and I just knew that hell was at the center of the earth. Oh. Anyway, but I... I I just brought that up because I, I truly don't care. I don't view hell as a place or a state. Like, I have no view of hell because I don't think it's real. And even if I was a Christian, I wouldn't think it was real because it's logically incompatible with theism. So I think that, you know, the way that hell has come about, you know, in the Christian tradition is basically purely a result of human beings. Like, whether atheism is true, whether theism is true, the way that most people in our country in this time view hell is a contingent fact of social reality that bears literally no relation to how things actually are i can i think i can actually go with you pretty far on that one i mean not all the way to to no such thing as hell um but i do agree though well sorry i do feel like there is hell that that plays a sort of purgatorial role um but i'm saying the version of hell that i grew up with where it's this place of eternal conscious torment or state of eternal conscious torment i'm saying that just doesn't exist and bears oh, no relation to yeah I, I really like actually what now allender maybe buck might disagree with david bentley hart i'm not saying you have to agree with him on everything to accept this but i, I am saying that uh <laughs> but i think that david bentley hart does actually say something really good and it makes a lot of sense in his book on that all shall be saved and it's like how do we have these well-meaning people who are probably good fathers to their children but like hold to such a radical doctrine in those radical ways you know he says it must be just a symptom of like a confused dogma that like someone like told them like you have this is the only way to be a christian right it makes kind of no other sense right you know what i mean yeah no like someone they got it in their heads at some point that like you have to believe this in order to be a real christian if you straightforwardly reject it then you're not really a Christian because it clearly does have this basis in tradition, yeah. you know? So like, yeah. you can't just reject it the way that I would. But yeah, I mean, it's the same way I felt when I first deconverted. It's like, if you're not a young earth creationist who believes in eternal conscious torment, then you're not a real Christian. You know, you're some kind, you're like watering it down or, you know, you're just not taking the Bible. You're not taking God's word seriously. But regardless, you're not really a Christian. The way you can be a real Christian is to take the Bible literally. And um, anything less than that is just, you know, 
kind of a fake version of Christianity. Like maybe you're saved, I guess, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I'll let you guys continue on to the free will part. Thank you guys for coming on, Kyle and Tim. Um, I really appreciate it. I've been, it's been interesting hearing your guys' thoughts on the problem of evil. And uh, yeah, I mean, I had a good time at the conference uh, with you guys, and I, I enjoyed your input. Likewise. Thank you. And check out Christian Idealism for Kyle's stuff, and check out Invoking Theism for Tim's stuff. So thank you guys for coming on. I'll have like an intro and outro and stuff. <laughs> Shut up. Hey.